Do well, not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a, blank, a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they, will, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, he, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, Matthew 7, verse 1, we just heard it read so well. Uh, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, when I read that and listen to it, I think that is so 21st century Australian, isn't it? It's tolerant, it's postmodern, you know, live and let live. Everyone's got the right to think what they think and the right to determine how they live without being judged by anyone else. Finally, we've got a bit of the Bible that helps us totally fit in within the culture of Australia, right? It's wonderful. Don't judge, don't be judged, okay? Then five verses later, we get verse six. Don't give to the dogs what's sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. It just sounds a little bit judgmental, don't you think? Uh, yeah, you've got this don't judge, but then you have this statement just a few... And then you get in verse seven, this rather unusual ironclad guarantee. God will answer Every prayer you pray. Listen, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Want to be rich? Pray, buy a cross lotto ticket. You will win. Right? Want to be healed? Pray and God will heal your sickness. It seems to be making a very open-ended sort of statement. So here we have within 12 verses, like we just heard, something that is so politically correct and a statement that is so offensive and then a third one that is just too good to be true. Right? All crowded in together in one little section. But the thing about the Bible is, uh, the Bible is not a random series of statements that you sort of pluck out and apply to different situations. It is a very coherent uh, teaching, and particularly here with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it is very clear that Jesus is teaching consistently on what it means to be one of his followers. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, how do these things hang together? How does this teaching hold in a connected way? Okay, well, let's look at the first, first five verses. Don't judge. In uh, Chapter 7, there do, do seem to be different aspects of judgment that are highlighted. So verses 1 and 2, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, 
you too will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what sort of judgment are we talking about at this point? Uh, are we talking about the sort of ability to condemn? You know, a bit like the, uh, the judge in the kids' puppet show that we just saw. You know, the capacity to make a judgment and execute sentence. And let me say, in Matthew chapter 7, there are definitely elements of that that are clear. Listen to verse 13, just after the reading we heard. Uh, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Verse 19, every tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or in verse 23, there are some who claim to be followers and even do miracles in Jesus' name. And this is what Jesus says, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. So here in this chapter, there is the strong judgment of God that is clearly on view. Now, this is not popular in uh, 21st century Australia, let me say, but it is real. This is the nature of God. So there's judgment on view, which is uh, sentencing, condemnation, but there's also the sense of discernment, uh, judging the sense of discernment that's here. Um, So recently, some of you would have seen that the Judges have determined who the Archibald Portrait Prize winner is for this year. They used discernment to work out what they thought was the best entry. Uh, We're in that crazy sort of football finals time of the year and referees, umpires, are are being required to determine when it's a push in the back or when it's holding the ball. And there's always uh, diverse views that are expressed at that point depending on which side you're following. Uh, We have lecturers at uni... You have to determine whether papers are fails, passes, credits or high distinctions. They're discerning based on the information that they have. The point here is that we don't stand in the place of God. That is, we don't determine someone's eternal future. We don't judge in that sense. But we are to exercise godly discernment. That's clear as we look at this passage. So just after the section we read, verse 15, it says... Watch out for false prophets. By their fruit, you'll recognise them. There's a discernment required there, an assessment. So, what are we talking about when it comes to judgment here? Well, Jesus is saying, don't judge. But do judge. Okay? Don't judge, but do judge. That is, exercise godly judgment... But be careful to do it without being judgmental. Right? It's all clear about that? No problems? It's not that straightforward, is it? <laughs> You're like, we seem to have those funny things bouncing up against each other. So how do we work our way through it? It's just not that obvious. So Jesus uses divine humour to help us get it. And that's what the kids' talk was all about, verses 3 to 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now, we all know what this is like, don't we? Uh, If you ever get a speck of dust in your eye or an eyelash in there, it is just so incredibly irritating. You, know, you blink your eye, you can't get rid of it. And, uh, and someone trying to help you, it's almost impossible. 
to actually spot the problem, let alone remove it. Uh, that's the scene that's being painted. So I want you to imagine that Sue, my wife, is blinking away, dust in her eye or an eyelash or something like that, right? And I come along, well-intentioned to try and help her, but I have this gum tree growing out of my eye, right? I say, oh, let me help you, darling, with your speck and your... Boof, you know, boof, don't worry about that. Oh, like, it's, it's a ludicrous sort of picture that's being painted here uh, that Jesus sets up for us. And that's the very point he's trying to make. Jesus is continuing his attack on hypocritical judgmentalism. You know, looking down on others with the sense of moral superiority. Having a self-righteousness, which means we're oblivious to our own sin, but able to spot it in other people. When I was at Bible college, I remember that I was a student minister at a church. Uh, so Sue and I went along. I think it was week two. And Duncan and Elsie, who were a couple in their 70s, came up and introduced themselves, which was a lovely thing to do. But this is how they introduced themselves. They said, hi, welcome to our church. Uh, we're Duncan and Elsie, and we have the gift of rebuking. Right? That was the way they introduced it. We have the gift of rebuking. And... I immediately thought two things. Uh, The first was, I'm not sure that's a gift, actually. (laughs) That was my first thought. And then my second thought was, why are you telling me? You know, (laughs) that is, you know, so it sort of, and it did, it sort of set up in that way. But of course, even as I tell you that story, you can tell why I'm at risk, can't you? Because even as I tell it, you can hear me looking down on them as I see them sort of looking down on me. That is the risk, isn't it? In terms of the way in which we conduct ourselves with one another. Jesus is not saying, abandon your ability to discern sin or assess what godly behaviour is. He's not saying, don't ever say anything to anyone else because you're a sinner. He's not saying that either. But what he is asking us to do is to think deeply about our relationship with God and the way in which it affects our relationship with other people. Because at the end of the age, every single one of us is going to front up before the living God in judgment. And when that happens, how do you want to be treated? According to what you deserve? Or based on his grace? and his mercy towards you in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I've got a fair idea which way I want that to run. And therefore, Jesus is saying, if you appreciate the grace and mercy you've received from God, then you'll relate to others the same way. Right back at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful, because they'll be shown mercy. You see, when you realise your spiritual poverty before God, when you mourn your own sin, and when you know the mercy of God, then, of course, there is no self-righteousness or arrogance, is there? It can't be. So...
Where are these sort of things likely to um, find themselves surfacing in a Christian community of believers? How, how are we likely to potentially get ourselves in trouble? Uh, I'll just pluck a few out. There could be lots of them. Parenting styles, okay? Parenting styles. How should parents exercise discipline? I reckon we could get a fair diversity of views around that in this room, depending on your age and stage of life and depending on whether you've actually got children at this point that you're caring for. Uh, how should you educate your children? Should you homeschool, public school, private school? Uh, you know, those sort of questions are common. How many children should you have in a world that's overpopulated? Uh, should you stop at 2.2? Uh, you know, like there are all sorts of questions that come up when it comes to parenting. Should you raise your kids Jesus' way? I think there was a book written that way, Raising Kids God's Way. Okay? Should you raise kids God's way or Satan's way? You know, like it's a silly title for a book, isn't it? You know? Um, but there are lots of different views, but I've seen the way in which people have picked up these sort of exercises and implemented them in their families and looked around expecting everyone else would know exactly how they should be doing it too and why don't they? Should you have control crying or not? Should you, you know, like there are all sorts of ways in which we can see that. Depending on your age today, you know, uh, if you're my age or slightly older, that grandparently stage, you will have vague thoughts about what you would have done with your children in church at this point. That may not match what you observe happening around you. And it's easy to think how parents should be acting differently with their kids in church, isn't it? You know? And we just forget how impatient we get as we get older. You know, there are all sorts of ways in which we can judge. We can judge when it comes to money, the way we see people spending their money, what they wear, lifestyle choices, what you drink, what you drive, where you live. You may feel that someone actually is looking down on you for something that you've done or do. And you look down on them because they look down on you. (laughs) And often we do it just to make ourselves feel better about who we are. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying don't discern sin. Not saying that you should discern sin as a community of God's people. But do remember, always remember that we are recipients of grace. Otherwise we will judge primarily in a way that actually makes us feel better about our own behaviour, which is so unhelpful. In the same way you judge, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Right? Don't judge. But then Jesus goes on and he says... Do judge. Don't judge. Do judge. Uh, Verse 6. Do not give dogs what's sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's interesting, actually. I think in our culture, you can probably call someone a dog almost as a term of endearment, you know. Oh, you dog. You know, sometimes blokes do that. I wouldn't suggest you do it with your wife or your girlfriend, but, you know, sometimes that can be used that way. Or when you think about pigs, you might think about the royal show and little piglets, you know, the performing entertainers. But, of course, the first century context here, these were wild animals. Dogs were dangerous scavengers. Pigs were unclean. And especially the Jews used to look down on Gentiles because they were pig 
meat eaters. You see, to call someone a dog or a pig in the first century was probably the equivalent of us calling someone a child molester. Uh, if you get the, the weight of that, you understand what's going on here. Don't judge. But I think this does seem judgmental, doesn't it? But the point's clear. Don't give what's valuable. That is, I think in this context, the gospel, the good news, to those who have no appreciation of it or treat it like garbage. I've been saying to a few people, we've got uh, one of our grandchildren staying with us this week, two and a half years old, and it's been a delightful time. But we don't serve food to her on bone china or give her her water in crystal glasses. Now, let me just make this clear. We don't have much bone china or crystal. I don't want you to judge me and think I'm living a high life or anything. But you get the point. That that is, a two-year-old has no appreciation of you know, the fineness of bone china or cut glass crystal, you know. Uh, Therefore, we don't bother with that. It's the same, isn't it, when it comes to the gospel. Some people just have no appreciation of how priceless the gospel is. But then you might say, but isn't that the point with evangelism? You know, like, don't you share the gospel with people who have no appreciation of it and are antagonistic you know like I think about my own situation I was a pig and a dog right up until the point in time when I received the gospel very antagonistic and anti-gospel and anti-Christian so how, how does this work Jesus is saying when it comes to sharing the gospel there is never a place for harsh judgmentalism That is, we always have compassion and mercy for those around us who aren't believers. But I think he's also saying there may be a time when it's appropriate to move on or not to engage. Uh, Again, when I became a Christian, I had a group of non-Christian mates and I would go to one of their parties and I would find they'd be really open to talking about the gospel after they'd had six or eight drinks, you know, very open at that point, but normally they're open to an argument. They just are ready just to fight it out. And after a while I worked out that there probably wasn't a lot of point in trying to engage over the gospel with my drunk friends at a party. You know, Just using some discernment at that point. But understand that the job is not to look down on them, <laughs> drunken friends but to actually know they desperately needed to receive the grace and mercy I'd received, that is a heart full of compassion for them, at the same time as realising at this point it wasn't the right moment. Most of us will know that experience. Uh, We'll have family or friends, long-standing people that we tried to share the gospel with who just block all the time, or even more strongly fight it. And there are times when you pull back and when you just graciously let it go through to the keeper. You may say nothing, you may invest elsewhere, uh, but at the end of the day, you always keep praying for them. Always. Right?
Don't judge. Do judge. So here's the question. How do you avoid judgmentalism? How do you avoid judgmentalism? I want to look particularly at verses 7 to 11. Uh, I think to exercise godly discernment um, and maintain a heart of grace and mercy is hard. I think it's really easy to be zealous for God, his name, his honour, what he expects of us, and become more oblivious to your own faults and your own sin. I think those two things do tend to happen. You might be someone who slams immorality and yet struggles with pornography or lustful thoughts. Perhaps you look down on someone who is an angry brother or sister who always seems to be exploding in situations and yet for you, you can inwardly seethe when people don't treat you the way you expect to be treated. It's just that you have better social skills for squeezing it in. Yeah, it's, we can be dismissive of those who say, Lord, Lord, but seem to be caught up in materialism and consumerism and gathering assets and yet secretly be jealous of what they have or their success. And that's where I think these... The, these words about praying in verses 7 to 11, they fit in. But they do seem so open-ended, don't they? Ask and you'll get. Seek and it's yours. Knock and it will be open. Want to be wealthy? Pray. Your heavenly Father will help you become wealthy. Sick and be healed? Pray. You will be healed. Want a promotion at work? Pray. It's yours. It just seems to be saying that, doesn't it? But can I say it's not saying it? <laughs> you know, you work that out from the context that we're in. It's talking about the very character of God. That's where you go in verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Uh, as I mentioned, two-year-old granddaughter staying with us right now. I want you to imagine she asked me for cake, and uh, I get out some of my crystal and grind it up and put it in the cake and give it to her to eat. Is that not a gross and a grotesque, sadistic sort of image to paint? Now, let me say, uh, even me, as a sinful man, I would never do that. I cannot imagine possibly even contemplating that sort of activity, even though I recognise my own flaws and my own failures. So how much more will our Heavenly Father give us good gifts? How much more? Disciples always pray knowing that God is good. God is good. But why does God sometimes not answer when it seems good to us that he should. Some of you will remember just a few years ago um, attending Stephanie's funeral over at Golden, Golden Grove, Padere. Stephanie was a returned missionary from Central Asia, 33 years old, keen to go back. While she was here, contracted bowel cancer. Uh, 
All of us knew her, were praying for her, praying that God would heal her. And she just went downhill, got sicker and sicker, and she died. It seemed good to me when I was praying that God should heal her. It seemed good to me that God would enable her to go back and continue the ministry that she had. So why didn't God answer that prayer? Why not? I don't know. Quite honestly, I don't know why not. But let me tell you what I do know. I know that God is good and gracious and merciful. So I know his answer to that prayer was not because he lacked in any of those areas of compassion and goodness. So what are we being asked to pray for here? It is so hard to be discerning about godliness without becoming hypocritical or self-righteous. It is really hard to hold those two things together. But friends, can I say, if we pray for poverty of spirit, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, if we pray that God will help us to be merciful to others, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, if we pray that God will help us to be salt and light, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, if we pray that God will help us to live righteous lives, but he'll also at the same time show us our own sin and help us to repent of that. If we pray those things, do you think your heavenly Father won't answer those prayers? I tell you, he will. Therefore, chapter 7, verse 12, in everything, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. For this sums up all the law of the prophets. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Friends, we are a community that is built on the grace and the mercy of God. God has dealt with us that way, out of his kindness and his goodness. And therefore, we will show grace to the sinful. We will show mercy to the sinful. We will discern sin. We will identify it as a community of God's people. But let me say, when we do it, we'll always do it with our arm around the person we're talking to, we will never do it yelling in their face because the mercy we have received is the mercy and grace that we give. We're encouraged to pray. Can I lead us in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a a father who is so gracious and merciful, kind and overflowing in generosity. Father, we hear these strong warnings about not judging and yet being discerning. And Father, we know in our own hearts it's just really hard to hold those two things together. Uh, To be gracious towards others, aware of our own sin, 
concern for holiness in our community. Father, we pray that you and your kindness will help us to work out these truths in our life together. And Father, we ask that you will answer our prayers, that you'll keep identifying in us the fact that we are recipients of your mercy and that as we treat one another with truth and integrity, we'll do it with enormous grace and mercy because that is what you've shown to us. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.